look at John 6 here. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John 6. You can find a Bible in the seat back in front of you if you don't have a Bible. Are you hungry yet? <laughs> well, if you are, then I have some good news and some bad news for you this morning. The good news is that in today's scripture, we learn that God is offering us bread straight from heaven. It's available for us now. The bad news is that this is the weirdest, strangest bread that you've ever heard of, and it may not be the kind that you're looking for. Um, because... This bread, you can't eat it, um, you can't earn it, you can't get it anywhere that you'd expect, and you can't hold it. You can't eat it. And in fact, to receive this bread, you've got to get your mind off of where your next meal is coming from, off of your finances, off of this nation's economy and what our political leaders are doing about it, because this bread isn't about that. You can't earn this bread. To, to receive it, you've got to stop trying to get it. You can't get this bread anywhere that you'd expect. It's not widely available. In fact, there's only one place that you can get it. And finally, you can't hold this bread. It, it defies the, the tangible, the, the logical, the reasonable. It can't be figured out or grasped or understood. So why would you even want this bread? Well, if you're hungry, then I invite you to join me in looking at this passage to find out. John 6 is one long chapter, isn't it? It begins with, with a miracle on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and a couple fish and manages to feed, feed 5,000 men with it, plus women and children. And the people are amazed and, and they're delighted by this miracle of bread. And, and they no doubt remember that years before in 2 Kings 4, the prophet Elijah had done something similar on a smaller scale. And the people also uh, knew very well Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 33 that one day God would send a new prophet like Moses who would do this sort of thing again. And, and, and not only that, but he would rescue them from their oppression of exile, which in the people's minds had to do with the Roman Empire that they were under, which was oppressing them. Now, there was some disagreement back then about whether this prophet that, that Moses had foretold in Deuteronomy, whether he would be the forerunner of the Messiah or whether he would be the Messiah himself. But, but this crowd there, when, when Jesus multiplied the loaves, they evidently figured they'd take their chances on Jesus being both. Because after he did this miracle, after he provided them with bread, they figured that he was the prophet, and they clamored to make Jesus their king, their political savior, their messiah. But Jesus runs away. Jesus runs away. And his disciples are, are left behind. They're, they're, they're alone. To, to try to make sense of this, uh, why has Jesus walked out on a perfectly good opportunity? They're in the dark, and, and so John tells us in the darkness and all alone without Jesus, that they head home across the lake back to Capernaum. And as they sail, the wind picks up and the water grows rough, which is perhaps also a picture of what was going on inside of them. 
And while they're struggling to row home, Jesus then late at night comes to them walking on the water. Treading on the water, that's something in the Old Testament. There are scriptures that only God did. God treaded upon the waters. And Jesus may not want to be the crowd's Messiah, but he shows his disciples that he's actually far more than that, indeed. That he's God come to be with them. The next day, the rest of the people catch up with, with Jesus on the other side of the lake at the synagogue in Capernaum. And, and Jesus tells them that they're not looking for him because they understood the point of the miracle he did multiplying the bread. No, rather, they're, they're just seeking him because they liked being fed and they want more. And, and so Jesus tells them to stop going after the bread which spoils and to work for the bread that lasts not only in this life, but to eternal life. Now, as Greg Howe reminded us a few weeks ago, eternal life doesn't just mean living forever. It certainly does mean that. But eternal life also means living in the age to come, the, the transformed new creation age, which people were expecting God to inaugurate when this prophet or this Messiah came on the scene. In verse 28, the people say, we'll take that bread. We'll take the bread which lasts even into the life of the age to come. What kind of work must we do to get that bread? The, the people understood, after all, from Deuteronomy that, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And they were familiar, no doubt, with their rabbi's teachings that God's Torah, his Old Testament law, and also the wisdom of the Proverbs, they were like bread. So these people are looking for a new word. They're looking for a teaching. They're wondering what Jesus would add to the, to the Torah, to the, to, the, to the wisdom writings, so that, the, so that they could do these works, so that they could earn this bread that Jesus was talking about, which would last. And Jesus replies, here it is. Here's the work that God requires you to do. Believe on the one that he has sent. Believe on the one that he has sent. Not a list of commandments to do. Not a new vision for ethical living. But a person to believe in. To put your trust in. Well, if they're going to put their trust in Jesus, verse 30, the people want him to produce a sign so that they know that their trust is well placed. Now, this request might puzzle you like it used to always puzzle me. I mean, they want to see a sign? Like, Jesus just fed 5,000 plus people with a few loaves of bread. <laughs> what more of a sign could you want? But that was just barley bread. That was just peasant food. A, a miracle, no doubt, but nothing that Elijah hadn't approximated before. And it was only earthly bread. Moses had done better than that. I mean, I mean, Moses had given them heavenly bread. Moses had given them manna. Now that was a miracle. Feeding hundreds of thousands of people day after day with bread from heaven. If the prophet who was to come was going to be as great as Moses was great or greater, then surely he could do much better than just multiplying some barley bread. 
In fact, many rabbis taught that when the prophet or the Messiah came, that, that they would do Moses' miracle again, that they would bring down manna from heaven again, signifying a new deliverance for the people. And after all, this, all that we're reading about was taking a place at Passover time, the time when God's people remembered that Moses had led them out of Egypt, and, and so expectations were running high for something like that to come again. Now, just to underscore their point to Jesus about wanting a sign, the people quote a verse about this to Jesus. It's from the Old Testament, probably Psalm 78:24, which was looking back on the Exodus story. The verse they quote says, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Come on, Jesus, do it again. Just like Moses, give us, give us manna, then we'll place our faith in you. Lead us on a new deliverance like Moses did. So they say that to Jesus, and, and then in response, in, in this synagogue in Capernaum, the rabbi Jesus takes up the verse that they quoted, and he says, okay, time for a sermon on this verse. Let me explain to you what this verse really means. And, and so Jesus gives a sermon in the form that rabbis preached back then, which is that he unpacks this Old Testament verse phrase by phrase, explaining what it means in more detail. So we're going to look at Jesus' sermon, um, and we'll see what we can learn about the kind of bread that Jesus came to bring. So first, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus unpacks the first two words, he gave. Jesus points out that it wasn't really Moses who gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness. It was God, Jesus' father, right? Jesus is saying, get your perspective right. Get your eyes off of the human agent, the messenger, and see the big picture. See God at work. See the source. See the author of the miracle. This isn't about human personalities. It isn't about human leadership and who you're going to follow. This is first and foremost about God and what God is doing. And Jesus says, God is doing something new right now. God is giving you new bread. Get your eyes off of Moses and the bread that God gave in the past. God is giving, present tense, you even better bread right now. So these people have have got their eyes on Moses as, as a great miracle worker, as a, as a political deliverer who led their revolution about Egypt, and, and also as an economic wonder worker who fed them bread every day in the wilderness. And so they're looking for a new Moses. They're looking for a prophet, for a Messiah with uh, political and economic solutions. Now you have to feel for these people because the Jewish people were, were deeply impoverished and oppressed at this time in history. Like many people in the developing world today, the, the economic system was stacked against them by the powers that be. They, they were subject to high taxes, to unfair economic policies, to brutal and, and unjust police forces. And they were longing for political liberation. They were hungry, literally so. And they were looking for a new Moses, for a prophet, for a Messiah sent by God to, to fill the hungry bellies of their children, to, to set them free from Roman oppression. And Jesus has their hopes up. After all, he, he just with a few barley loaves has fed all of them bread. 
and they were ready to make him king. But Jesus had run away. Jesus had said, no, that's, that's not who I am. Get the Moses thing out of your mind. It's not about Moses. It's not about a new Moses. It's about God. It's about my father. The liberation God is sending you isn't going to come through the obvious political and economic channels that you're familiar with. Get your focus back on God, my Father. Start there and see the new surprising thing God is doing and who it is that God is giving you. So do you want this bread? Do you want bread that you can't eat? Are you looking for economic solutions? You know, I recently heard a statistic on the radio. It was on um, the NPR program Marketplace. And Kai Rizdahl, the host, was um, talking to someone from George Gallup uh, about voting trends and the way evangelical Christians vote. They were uh, talking about Rick Santorum during his campaign and his value-based platform and how much he was talking about values. And the guy from Gallup said that, that what Santorum needed to realize is that while evangelicals who he was seeking to appeal to appreciate his emphasis on, on values, at the end of the day, that's not what was going to get them to vote for him. Because while evangelical voters do, of course, care about values, the poll data shows that what they are even more concerned about is having a candidate who will fix the economy. In other words, when we as Christians go to the voting booth, it's really about bread that we can eat, first and foremost. Is that your attitude? Is your focus on the economy? I mean, nobody worries about the economy when it's going well. But, but when it's faltering, when it's failing, and, and your financial security and, and your future and, and that of your children are in jeopardy, is the economy what really worries you, preoccupies you, and motivates you above all else? And as you think of our country and, and the values that we do all care about, do you believe that the answer lies in politics? and who we get voted in. Now, I need to be careful because I don't want to suggest that polit political involvement and engagement is not important. But when the only emails that we consider important enough to forward along are political emails, and, and when people get to know us and they can't separate out our faith from our politics, and, and when we listen to more political talk radio than we do to the Bible, and when we get more worked up and passionate about political issues than our own personal spiritual growth or lack thereof, then we need to ask ourselves, are we really following Jesus? Do we really understand the kind of bread that God is offering us through Jesus? Or are we really looking for another Moses figure and the physical bread that he can provide? All right, well, Jesus goes on, second, in this sermon, in verses 35 to 40, to focus on the word bread. The people are looking for food, something that we can actually eat. Jesus, in verse 27, offers them bread which doesn't spoil, like Moses' manna spoiled. And the people say, great, bring it on, you know, like, uh, like um, long shelf life bread, all the better. Give us this manna. 
But, but Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. You don't understand. I'm not like Moses. Or it's not like um, Moses gave you bread. And, and I'm a new, better Moses going to give you a new, better bread. No, it's, it's God who, who gives you the bread that I'm talking about. And I am the bread. I am the bread. Not Wonder Bread, not Pepperidge Farm Bread, not even the Bible as our daily bread. No, Jesus says, I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so the question here is, are we focused on the giver or are we focused on the gifts? Are we clamoring for the gifts and forgetting about the one who gives them? You know, when I was dating Anne, she gave me some great gifts. But what I wanted more than any of them was her. I wanted her company. I wanted her affection. I wanted her attention. And, and the greatest gift of all that, that she gave me was on our wedding day. When, when she gave me herself. When she pledged her presence, her, her devotion, her companionship until death do us part. Look at Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. That's the bread that God is offering us here. In Jesus, God is offering us himself, his own dear presence to cheer and to guide, as the old hymn puts it. Jesus is saying, stop being preoccupied with bread from my hand. I am the bread. I am the bread. Take me. Nourish yourself on me. I will satisfy you. I will nourish you like nothing else. I will never spoil. I will never go stale. If you feed on me, you will never die, but you will live on into the new age. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, life in the age to come. And I will raise him up at the last day, Jesus says, to enjoy life forever in that new age. But, but look at verse 47. Jesus also says, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Present tense, has eternal life. If you feed on this bread, if you feed on Jesus, you can begin to live the life of the new age now. Do you remember this chart? This is the way the New Testament pictures reality since Jesus came. There's this present age at the bottom here, this, this fallen, broken, slowly running down, eventually fading, way, uh, fading away world that we live in. And, and then there's the, the age to come, the age of the future, the age of, of resurrection, of all things made new, of, of paradise, of heaven. It's also called the new creation. It's called the kingdom of God. And the good news that Jesus came to bring was that this kingdom is breaking into history now. It has been breaking in since, since Jesus came. Since the coming of Jesus, this, this uh, future age of the kingdom has been rushing, for, uh, rushing backwards into history, into the now, invading the present. And so now both ages, we live in this period where both ages exist 
simultaneously. And, and we're down here in this, this present age, and, and the age to come is, is all around us now, and yet somehow it, it's out of reach, it's beyond us. And, and how do we get into it? How do we access it? How do we begin living in it? Well, do you remember the movie The Matrix, for those of you who saw it? And, uh, and, and Neo takes the red pill, right? And, and he's transported out of, of the, the Matrix, the illusion of the Matrix, and he's transported into real life, into reality. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just take a magic pill? <laughs> and, and it would transport us into the new age, the age of the kingdom of God, the age to come. Well, there's no magic pill, but there is some special bread. If you eat that bread, you are transported immediately into the life of the age to come. And the more you eat that bread, the more you come to live in that new age and the less you live in the old. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, isn't it? He's saying, I am that bread. Get your eyes off of the gifts. What you're going to eat and what, what you're going to wear. Look at the giver. He is giving you himself as the gift. And in that gift of himself, you will have everything else that you need. All right, let's continue. Third. In verses 43 to 51, Jesus unpacks the phrase from heaven. Jesus claimed in verse 38 that he had come down from heaven. And this made the Jews grumble. Now note that word grumble. Just like the Israelites had grumbled in the wilderness about the manna and how God wasn't taking good enough care of them. And now they begin grumbling about the new bread that God is giving them. Just like they grumbled about the old. They're offended that Jesus claims to be from heaven. After all, they know Jesus. They, they know his family. He's from Nazareth, the next town over. He, he grew up there. He's just a local boy. He didn't come from heaven. How can he say this? Well, who does he think he is? And you know, to, to us, it's so obvious that, that Jesus is God. My three-year-old Rachel already knows that. You can ask her and she can tell you that Jesus is God. It's the one thing she knows about theology. <laughs> Jesus is God. But, but that's because Jesus didn't grow up down the street from us. He, he didn't, you know, we, we didn't experience him running around as this, this barefooted, dirty-faced little kid. You know, snotty-nosed, climbing trees, playing games with our kids. For the people who lived it at that time, Jesus was, was so human, just like we are. He was just one of the gang. And God, while God was, God was so holy, so untouchable, so sacred, so other, how dare Jesus equate himself with God? It was unthinkable. It was blasphemous. Leslie Newbegin puts the offense well in his commentary. He says, how can a man whose origins are known, say, I came down from heaven. How can a man with a known name and address be God? And as you know, um, Jesus' humanity still trips us up today. 
from a slightly different perspective. It's a scandal that in the words of P.T. Forsyth, I've quoted these before, that our real and destined eternity goes round by Nazareth to reach us. And so today many ask, why do we have to look to Nazareth? Why do we have to look to some Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago? Why, why can't we look to Buddha or to Brahma or to Mohammed? Why can't we look within? Isn't God accessible to all of us here today in 21st century America? Aren't there many ways to find him? How can Jesus say that, that, that he came down from heaven, that, that he is God like no other, and that, that you have to come to him to know God and to have eternal life? If God wanted to reach out to us, why, why would he only do it one way, through, through the limits of, of being a, a man? Why would he come in such a small, such a humble, such a, an unexpected, such a narrow way? Well, Jesus doesn't answer our question, and he didn't answer their question. He doesn't explain to the people who are asking him how he could say he came down from heaven. He doesn't explain how he was really born through a miraculous virgin birth and it's all okay, he really did come down from heaven. He just, he doesn't explain any of that. And you see, that's because God won't bow to our requirements. God won't go through our hoops or fit himself into our boxes. God refuses to, to come to us on our terms and become less than he is. Just like Jesus won't let the crowd make him their king, make him into their image to, to be the kind of savior that they think he should be. And just like Jesus won't give them a sign, he won't submit to their criteria of what makes him believable. So now also, Jesus won't answer all their questions or resolve all their sticking points. No, he just says, stop grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. It's written in the prophets, he says, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and, and has learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, if, if you are really listening to God with a humble heart, with an open mind, then then. God will tell you that I'm true. And you'll see that you can believe in me. But if God isn't drawing you, isn't opening your eyes, if you're not open to that, then, then you're never going to get it. Of course you're not going to get it by yourself. It's, it's beyond getting. Would you expect a real God to be any less? And then finally, Jesus unpacks the last part of the verse, in verses 53 to 57. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, to eat. This is where things get even more offensive. Listen to what Jesus says. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats this flesh and drinks this blood remains in me and I in them. Just as I live, Jesus says, because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me 
will live because of me. You can understand how people misunderstood. I mean, first of all, for people to eat and drink Jesus, a sacrifice would have to take place. Jesus would have to die. He would have to get cut up. He would have to be served. <laughs> and, and this thought, if it's not funny, is, is so offensive and so wicked to them just as it is to us. I mean, please, Jesus, we're not that hungry. Why are you going so far overboard? Yet we know that Jesus was going that far overboard. All the way overboard. He was going to give himself away. He was going to lay down his life in a sacrifice. He was going to give up as an offering his own flesh, his own blood, his own life. Don't miss the fact that for bread to do us any good... It has to be consumed. It has to be used up. It has to be eaten. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Once you get eaten, you're gone. And Jesus was willing to give himself over for our sakes so that we could eat and live. So how do we eat and drink Jesus? Well, at least three ways. First, we come to him and we believe in him. That's the language that Jesus uses again and again in this chapter. Come to me, believe in me, verse 35. Come to me, verse 37. Look to me and believe in me, verse 40. Come to me, verse 43. Come to me, verse 46. Believe, verse 47. Jesus is calling for our allegiance. He's calling for our trust. He's, he's calling for us to acknowledge and, and to believe that he really is who he's saying he is. The bread from heaven that God is giving us to give us life, eternal life in the age to come. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood is to receive him as this bread and to nourish ourselves on what he offers. And this blends into the second way that we eat and drink, and that is that we just go with the image, we go with the metaphor. And as the old communion liturgy puts it, we feast on him in our hearts by faith. In our minds, in our hearts, with our imaginations, we allow ourselves to long. We allow ourselves to feast. We recognize that on a spiritual level, Jesus is the food that we really need. The, the heavenly food that never spoils, that, that enables us to live the life of the new age now and forever. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so we recognize this, or if we recognize this, then Jesus invites us to recognize himself as the food that comes from that other world to satisfy those desires and longings we have and to enable us to live more and more into that world. The third way that we eat and drink happens when we come to this table. And why don't the ushers begin to come forward now? 
It's amazing, isn't it, that, um, that this image of bread is so central to Jesus that he commanded us to do this regularly when we gather together. At this table, we eat and we drink Jesus. We remember him. We remember that, that he died on a cross as a sacrifice so that he could offer his flesh and his blood to us. We not only remember him, we also recognize him. We recognize that he is the bread of heaven who can give us eternal life, life in the age to come. And we not only remember and recognize him, but we feast on him. Eat, drink, he says. He says, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So this bread <coughs> speaks to us of Jesus' flesh. And this blood, or this cup, sorry, speaks to us of Jesus' blood. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And after supper, he took the cup, and he said, take, drink, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death, the Lord's death, until he comes. Now I recognize that just as back then, so is true today, people who are, are seeking Jesus are at all different places in that journey. We're not all at the place where we're ready to accept Jesus' scandalous teaching that we've looked at this morning. His claim to be the bread of God. His offer to, to come for us to come, to, to believe and to eat. And, and so if you're not there, then please feel free, please do let the elements pass by as they come to you. But if you are hungry for the bread that only God can give, if you believe Jesus is this bread, and you're ready to trust your life to him, and if you sense him calling you and inviting you to, to come to him, to, to feast on him, then what better way to do that than to participate in this meal, to take, to eat, to drink?